Acts chapter 12 is where we'll be reading this morning, verses 1 through 25. Go ahead and remain seated as uh, this is a bit of a longer section, and I'll read these verses for us. Acts 12, verses 1 through 25. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was being made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. The angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod, and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter, And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. Having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Our Father and our God, we ask that you would bless us during these next few minutes as we open your word together and seek to understand more, to learn more of what it is that 
that you would have for us to think and to act, how we as a church are to depend on you, how we are to think about these types of difficult situations, and ultimately, the triumph of the gospel over uh, all, all who would oppose your purposes, God. I pray that you would instill these truths into our hearts and minds. Teach us and instruct us in the ways that you would have us to go. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, we are continuing our sermon series through the book of Acts. Once again, here in Acts chapter 12, the church is facing opposition. Uh, not from the high priest this time, uh, not from Saul, who of course has been converted at this point. No, this time it's from Herod. <clears throat> not the same Herod, by the way, who was killed. I'm sorry, who killed all of the uh, baby boys when Jesus was born. You know that story. Uh, not the same Herod. This is his grandson. Okay, Herod is a term sort of like a pharaoh or king. It's not really a name, it's a title. And so uh, there were several Herods mentioned in the New Testament. This is Herod Agrippa I. Verse 1 of chapter 12 tells us that about this time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Herod himself probably didn't care very much about Christianity either way, uh, but his motivation here was to try and gain favor with the Jews. His motivations were political. And verse 2 says, He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. This is the first of the twelve apostles to be, to be killed. Uh, the Talmud said that those who worship a false god should be beheaded with a sword. And so that's probably uh, how Herod had James killed, since the Jews consider Christians to be worshiping another god. This was a severe blow to the church. One of their leaders has been put to death. And then verse 3 goes on to say that when he saw that it pleased the Jews, they were happy with the fact that he had killed James, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. So Herod had gained some political points by this action. He is, his approval rating skyrocketed with the Jews, so he decided to go after another one of the key leaders of the church, the apostle Peter. This was an all-out attack on Christianity, an attempt to thwart the kingdom of God by taking out some of the apostles. He was targeting the very pillars of the early church. Verse 4 says, When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Herod wanted to have a public execution for Peter in hopes of gaining more political favor with the Jews. So Herod plans to wait until all the festivities of the Passover week are done, uh, so all of the attention can be focused on this execution of Peter. He wants this to be the talk of the town. And so Peter is kept under tight security. Uh, two guards are chained to him on either side, and then more guards are stationed at his cell door. Uh, as we'll see in a minute, there's an iron gate protecting the whole prison. This is a maximum security prison in these days. Verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison as he's awaiting his execution the next day. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Here we see in this battle between Herod and the church that, that Herod is using all of his political power, his authority, his prisons, his soldiers... The church was using their only weapon, prayer. And verse 6 says, When Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Now, I have a question at this point there in verse 6. You see it mentions Peter is sleeping. 
Uh, how is he able to sleep? I mean, imagine James has just been killed. You've just been arrested. You know that you're supposed to be executed too. How is he sleeping? And I think to answer that, we need to look quickly at John 21. This is an interaction between uh, Jesus and Peter after Jesus rose from the dead. If you're familiar with the arrest and uh, trial of Jesus, you remember Peter denied Jesus three times. Uh, he was terrified of what, what was going to come if they found out that he was associated with Christ. And so when he was asked if he was one of Jesus' disciples fearing for his life, Peter said, no, I don't even know who that guy is. Three times that night, he denied any association with Jesus. This is a low point in his life. And so after Jesus was crucified and risen again, he meets with Peter and calls him back into his service. And look at what he says to him in verse 15 of John 21. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Then he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And you can see what he's doing there. The three times Peter had denied him. And now three times Jesus asks him, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And then notice verse 18. Truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. And so Peter, uh, Jesus tells Peter, when you are old, you're going to be crucified just like I. You'll stretch out your hand. Someone will carry you off to your death. And then Jesus, after prophesying that Peter would die in this way as a martyr, he says to him, follow me. Echoing back to years before in the Sea of Galilee, when Jesus had initially seen Peter there fishing, and he said, follow me. So now Peter knows at this point that if he chooses to serve Christ, it will cost him his life. He will serve the Lord until he is old, then he will be put to death and glorify God in his death. He would be faithful even to the end when he would be crucified. And so here in Acts 12, back to our text, how is it that Peter is able to sleep in prison? Well, uh, maybe for one thing, he isn't old yet. Uh, Jesus said you're going to die when you're old. And so maybe Peter in the back of his mind is thinking, well, this can't be the end for me. Uh, but more than that, Peter, I think, is able to sleep because he has the promise of Christ that he's going to be faithful unto death. He wasn't going to cave into the pressure like last time and deny his Lord. Peter knows that he will die for Christ. And so now he sleeps, trusting God for what is in his future. While he's there sitting in prison, chained to those two guards, soundly sleeping, verse 7 says, Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. You ever been so tired that a light doesn't even wake you up? Something has to come hit you. Uh, he is soundly sleeping here. Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. Verse 8, the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. 
He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Uh, we're not really told exactly how this happened. Did the angel uh, put some sort of a trance on the prison guards? Were they asleep somehow? Uh, or, or how this happened exactly? We don't have those details, but it seems like Peter just got up and walked right out of prison. Verse 10, when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to an iron gate leading into the city. This is the last line of defense in the prison. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. Uh, the Greek term used there for the door opening of its own accord is automata, uh, where we get automatic, which means the door just opened by itself. This big iron gate. And then once they get out of the prison gate and into the city, the angel leaves him, and Peter is standing there in the street wondering what in the world just happened. Verse 11, when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord <clears throat> has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So it, it takes a minute for him to process uh, all of what's going on here, and maybe he's a little half asleep and dazed. When he comes to himself, he realizes that this is not a vision, it's reality. And so verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Uh, by the way, this is not the Mary, the mother of Jesus, nor is this <clears throat> Mary Magdalene, uh, nor is it Mary, the sister of Martha. This is another Mary. As you read the New Testament, there are six different Marys mentioned. Uh, this one is Mary, the mother of Mark, who is Barnabas's cousin. Uh, by the way, this sort of thing just confirms in my mind uh, that when we read in the New Testament, we are reading real historical events uh, that were not just made up by someone. Uh, think about this. If you were to write a book of fiction, uh, you wouldn't give two people the same name. Uh, you definitely wouldn't give six different characters the same name. That isn't how we write books. That's not how we make up stories. But it is how real life works. In real life, some names are just common. My name is one of those. Uh, pretty much everywhere I've ever worked, every church I've ever been a part of, anytime there's a group of more than 50 people, there's going to be more than one David. At the church that I was growing up in, there were five different Davids at our church. Uh, David Lucina, David Belarjan, David Strange. There was a kid named Elliot, but his first name was actually David. And then there was me. Five different Davids in a church of about 40, 45 people. And so at the time of the New Testament, Mary was just a common name. And so there's several different people mentioned here uh, in the Bible named Mary. Same with the name James. You'll notice there's, I think, three different Jameses uh, in the New Testament as well. And I bring this up again just to, to say, if someone were coming up with characters and making up the stories of Scripture, they wouldn't have given uh, multiple different people the same name. These are real events that took place in the lives of real people. So the church is gathered there at Mary's house. They're praying for Peter. Uh, he walks up. He knocks on the door. Verse 13, when he had knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. So they're, they're at this house praying for Peter. They're gathered there for that purpose. Verse 14, recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. So Peter is left outside. She goes in to tell the others, hey, you're not going to believe this. Uh, Peter is here. And so she goes in. They're praying there at Mary's house. And just to show you the depth of their faith, they responded in verse 15, you are out of your mind. 
But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. They're coming up with every sort of uh, uh, rationale that they could think of. There's no way it's Peter. You must be crazy. Meanwhile, Peter is still outside knocking, verse 16. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. This is something I find interesting in the story. The church was gathered here in Mary's house for the purpose of praying for Peter, earnestly praying for him, is what the chapter said earlier. And yet, when God answered the prayer and released Peter, they couldn't believe it, which tells me that they were praying for Peter, but they had some doubts. They weren't really convinced that God was going to do anything about this. Isn't it kind of God to answer prayers at times, even when we're not really praying in full faith? Verse 17, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. So Peter goes into hiding at this point. Meanwhile, back in prison, uh, back at that prison where Peter had walked out, verse 18, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. So this was a big commotion. Uh, going on here. Verse 19, after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Uh, soldiers who lost a prisoner that they were responsible for often in that culture paid with their own life. And now the story moves uh, to explain how God dealt with Herod. Uh, he, Herod, you see at the end of the verse, he goes down from Judea to Caesarea to spend some time there. So uh, he, he goes off maybe on vacation there on the seaside to the city of Caesarea. And verse 20 tells us of some political disputes that were taking place during this time uh, between the leaders of Tyre and Sidon and Herod. Verse 20, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain. Uh, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. So there's some geopolitical disputes going on here. They're trying to reconcile, uh, re restore trading between the two countries and make peace. And so verse 21, on the appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. He took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration or a speech to them. And the people were shouting the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Uh, Josephus, a secular historian who uh, lived at this time and wrote all sorts of things about this time period, he gives us a very detailed uh, description of this very event. He writes that Herod was in Caesarea giving this speech, and according to Josephus, he was wearing robes made entirely of silver. And so as, he's, as the sun is hitting it, it's just glistening and shining, and the people are amazed. Joseph corroborates exactly what Luke says happens here, that Herod was in the middle of his speech, and the people were shouting out that he was a god, that he was no mere mortal. And Herod, according to Josephus, did not rebuke them for this blasphemy. He accepted it. And then suddenly, Herod was struck ill in his stomach and collapsed. And Josephus writes that it was so bad that they had to carry him off to the palace where he eventually died a miserable and painful death. And the mention of the worms there probably refers to tapeworms on his intestinal tract. 
I find it interesting how God chose to deal with Herod, this wicked ruler who had arrested Peter. He had killed James. He was waiting until after Passover, you remember, in order to have a public execution. He wanted crowds of people to see him kill Peter. And after Peter was rescued from prison, God didn't strike Herod dead right away. He waited to deal with Herod until he was in front of crowds of people. And in the middle of this spectacle with all the people in amazement watching him, fawning over him, right then God strikes him down. And to make the point of his humiliation even clearer, Herod is eaten by worms. This powerful ruler has been reduced to nothing. John Stott says, such is the power of God to overthrow hostile human plans and to establish his own in their place. Tyrants may be permitted for a time to boast and bluster, oppressing the church and hindering the spread of the gospel, but they will not last. In the end, their empire will be broken and their pride cast down. I mentioned earlier that this is Herod Agrippa I. His uncle was Herod Antipas. This is the one that Jesus stood trial before. Remember when they gave Jesus the crown of thorns and the robes and they mocked him? That was Herod Antipas. And then his father, this would be Herod Agrippa's grandfather, was Herod the Great, the one who had those baby boys in Bethlehem killed when he learned that Jesus was born there. So three generations of Herod all tried to stop Christianity, and they all failed. Herod the Great couldn't kill baby Jesus because God had warned Joseph and Mary to get out of town that this was coming, and so they had escaped in the night. Herod Antipas mocked Jesus during the trial just before his crucifixion, but in the end, Jesus won when he walked out of his tomb alive. And here, Herod Agrippa tries once again to stop the mission of Christ by killing some of the key leaders of the church, and God strikes him down. And then look at verse 24. I love this. Herod is dead now. And the next verse says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Such a simple statement that the church just kept going. Herod was defeated. The word of God that he had tried to silence just kept marching on. Many throughout the history of the church have tried to stamp out the existence of Christianity. Uh, you have the high priests earlier in the book of Acts. They tried to stop the church by arresting the apostles. And you remember how God sent an angel on that occasion, uh, let the apostles out of jail. They went right back into the temple and kept on preaching. Then Saul tried to stop the church by imprisoning and executing Christians everywhere that he could find them. And all that did was scatter the church into new areas as people were fleeing for their lives and they were planting churches everywhere they went. Thus, the kingdom of God was actually advancing and God was using Saul's persecution to do that. And then God saved Saul himself and he became a part of the church. And then here in Acts 12, Herod tries to get rid of the church again, and God took care of him in short order. Every attempt to stop the kingdom of God was destined to fail, because Jesus had said in Matthew 16, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Others have tried <clears throat> since the time of the New Testament to stop Christ from building his church, History tells us that all of the 12 apostles were martyred, with the exception of John. The other 11 and the apostle Paul all were put to death for their faith. <clears throat> the emperor Nero launched a campaign against Christians for years. Now, the Roman historian Tacitus tells us that toward the end of Nero's reign as emperor, 
He had built cages all over Rome that were elevated off the ground. And he would capture Christians, tie them up in the cage, slather them in oil and wax, and then light them on fire. Rome would be lit at night with the bodies of burning Christians. This is incidentally where the term Roman candle originates. Every attempt to stop the kingdom of Christ from advancing has been unsuccessful. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The stories of those who remained faithful to the Lord until death has been used by God to draw more people to Christ. And so persecution uh, from rulers, from emperors, has actually acted like pouring gasoline on a fire. They try to put it out and just keep spreading further. Some have tried to stamp out the church by destroying the Bible, burning every copy that they could find. Another uh, Roman emperor who ruled about 300 years after Christ was Diocletian. He was the most successful at this attempt. In addition to putting Christians to death, he tried to burn every existing copy of Scripture. And yet the church could not be stopped. People in churches started memorizing whole books of the Bible so that even if their copies were confiscated and destroyed, they could still recite their assigned portion of Scripture from memory when the church was gathered. And so the teaching of Scripture continued. We don't need to fear man. Uh, People in churches today are uh, panicked in some places about the government infringement uh, on religious rights. And while that may be in our future, that will not stop Christ from building his church. God can strike down wicked rulers like he did with Herod. God can save wicked rulers and change them like he did with Saul. Or God can let them do their thing and use their persecution to spread his kingdom. But all of it is in his control. Man cannot and will not stop the purposes of God from being accomplished. Romans 12, verse 10, John says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. This is how the church wins, by being faithful to the Lord, preaching the gospel, no matter what opposition we may face. Back to our text, the last verse there, verse 25 says, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Uh, Barnabas and Saul, you remember from last week, they went down from Antioch to Jerusalem, bringing uh, financial aid to the churches there because a famine was coming. And so uh, as they head back home, they bring Mark, who I mentioned earlier was Barnabas's cousin, and uh, he goes back to Antioch with them. And that sets us up for next week. The church is going to send out uh, Barnabas and Saul as church planters in Acts chapter 13. But for today, I want to circle back around uh, to the very beginning of the text and address a question that maybe you had as we were uh, working our way through this chapter. Chapter 12 begins with James being killed by Herod. And then Peter is rescued from the same fate. And maybe you're wondering, what's up with that? I mean, how is it? I mean, it's great that God did that for Peter and he freed him from jail and answered the prayers of the church. But what about poor James? And here are a few thoughts on that question. Number one, I think one reason that these things happen one right after another here in Acts 12 is to show us that God was just as much in control when James was killed as when Peter was rescued. If you just read the first two verses of the chapter, you might think that God was powerless to stop Herod's attack against the church. 
But then, in this situation with Peter, God intervenes. And all of the chains and guards and security and the gates of the prison, those were no difficulty at all for God to overcome. So, he could have done the same thing for James, and he chose not to. God was sovereign over both situations. Number two, Jesus had prophesied that James would suffer for him and that Peter would live to be old before his death. Both of those things took place. We're not going to take time to go to those texts uh, in the Gospels. But Jesus had told them both that they were going to give their lives if they chose to follow him. And so they knew going into that that this was their ultimate destiny. Uh, number three, this kind of bleeds into this. Don't think poor James. James was welcomed into the presence of God as a faithful witness who had served Christ until death. I was thinking about this yesterday. I, I got to spend some time um, with my grandmother who's got dementia very bad. Um, sorry, she kept looking at my father and didn't, didn't know who, who he was. And uh, she got all excited every time that he would say, I'm your son. And she'd go, I, I have a son? Wow. Um, and as I, as I was thinking about this, uh, I would so much rather die the way that James did than, uh, than the way that so many people do, dying of old age and suffering and going through all sorts of difficulty like that. If you gave me the option of dying for Christ or dying of old age in a retirement home having been bedridden for 10 years, uh, that's an easy choice for me. We all die. James had the honor of dying for the cause of Jesus, and I don't think today he's bitter about the fact that no angel was sent to rescue him on this occasion. So don't think poor James. Number four, and this is really the point I want us to consider, praying doesn't force God's hand. <clears throat> I have no doubt that the church prayed for James just like they did for Peter. And in the case of Peter, he was rescued. In the case of James, he was killed. Prayer doesn't force God to do what we want him to do. As I've said before, if you could boss God around, he wouldn't be God, you would. Uh, more on that in a minute. James, number five, had apparently fulfilled the mission that Jesus had for him. And his testimony of faithfulness unto death was the last piece of that work. Whereas in the life of Peter, God apparently had more for him to do. And so with all of that said, I think for, uh, Philippians 1, 19 through 21 is the attitude we ought to have of this whole situation. Uh, this is the Apostle Paul writing from prison, uh, not knowing exactly what awaits him. And here's what he says to the church in Philippi. I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So he's talking about the fact that he's in prison. Uh, he has no idea what's going to happen. But notice he says, you're praying for me. I have no doubt. I know that I will be delivered. And as we'll see in the next couple of verses here, he doesn't mean necessarily from prison. He means I'm going to be delivered whether I die or whether I live. Verse 20, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all, that I will not be at all ashamed. I don't want to fail Christ in this time is what he's saying. But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, for, for to, me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is the attitude that I think James had, that I think Peter had, and that all of us ought to have. Whether in life or in death, may Christ be magnified and glorified. And so we pray, believing that God can intervene and trusting him even when he doesn't. We tend to err on one side or the other of that when it comes to prayer. Either we think prayer doesn't work, prayer is a waste of time, 
Or we have the view of prayer that says we can force God to do whatever we want uh, just because we pray for it. God's like obligated to do what we tell him to do. And neither one of those is a healthy view of prayer. Instead, we ought to pray in faith and submission. Faith in God's ability, submission to God's will. Faith that God can do the humanly impossible and submission to accept whatever he chooses to do, even if that's not what we asked for, what we would have wanted. Now, all of those, I think, are secondary points in the text. The main point of this chapter is the triumph of the kingdom of Jesus over his enemies. Herod shows us the stupidity of trying to fight against God. When you oppose Jesus, you lose every time. He will build his church. No one can stop it. Psalm chapter 2 says, Why do the nations rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So these are kings and rulers of the earth, people in positions of power and authority, and they've decided to fight against God and against his purposes in the world. And so verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. He will terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Psalm 2 tells us that Jesus will rule over all the world. God the Father has promised to God the Son that the nations will be his heritage. The ends of the earth will belong to him. They will be his possession. He will rule over all the world. And any attempts to thwart God's kingdom from advancing is ultimately in vain. God chuckles at it. So the conclusion is, be warned, rulers and kings. Those of you in positions of authority who think you can oppose the mission of Christ, be warned. Serve the Lord, because if you choose to go against Jesus, you will lose in the end. This theme of the triumph of the church over the world is one of the main themes in Scripture. All throughout the Psalms, all throughout Isaiah, uh, Habakkuk, many of the prophetic books they hit this theme over and over of God's Son ruling over the nations. The kingdom of Christ spreading and increasing until everyone is in submission to him. Here is Psalm 110. This is uh, the verse in the Old Testament that is quoted the most in the New Testament. Some have called it uh, God's favorite Bible verse because he quotes it so often in Scripture. Uh, Psalm 110.1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. When Jesus ascended to heaven, we are told he sat down at the right hand of the Father, and every enemy of Christ will be subdued. Some will be struck down like Herod. Some will submit themselves to Christ like Saul, but every knee will bow to Christ. When he returns to take his seat on the throne at the end of time, no rival power will be left on earth. All of us will be in submission to Christ in that day. And so every attempt by man throughout history to stop the advance of God's kingdom has been and will be unsuccessful in the end. Because Christ said, I will build my church. 
and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. He must reign until all of his enemies are put under his feet. And as he builds his kingdom, he does so through our witness, through the spread of the gospel, through the making of disciples, through the word of God increasing and multiplying. Our church exists to advance God's kingdom on earth, one disciple at a time. That, this is how we win. With each disciple of Jesus that is made, that's another subject being transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Christ. One by one, people submitting their lives to the lordship of Christ until eventually all the ends of the earth will be his. And this morning, uh, we have a couple of additions uh, to the kingdom to celebrate. Uh, Zontrell and Jordan have been with us here for uh, quite a while, and they've been attending for a while. They asked, uh, basically, they've, they've decided that they would like to give their lives to Jesus. And so we're going to baptize them this morning, and I get to celebrate that commitment with them. And so as they come forward uh, to get ready for that, let's spend some time in prayer and reflection this morning. Uh, Jesus told us to pray for God's kingdom to come, that the promise of God that he would build his church, that's something we have a part in. Uh, we work towards that end, we pray towards that end, until the day that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Let's pray together.